afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 126 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Hannah Flint. I'm a mom woman. And I'm Clarice Lockery. This week, I'm on double interview duty as I chat Ooh. with exec producer, yeah, woo, Ooh. and director, Mimi Leader, about season three of Apple TV show, The Morning Show, plus writer-director Celine Song. I chat to her about her feature debut, Past Lives. We also review the film alongside My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 and A Life at the Farm. Plus, in our hot take, we discuss the ethics of reviews aggregator site Rotten Tomatoes. This podcast was recorded during the 2023 WDA and SAG after strikes. Without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, the movies being covered here wouldn't exist. Or the TV show. Uh, let's throw that in. So, I guess the first thing we got to do, you ready, Iman? Oh, yes. One, two, Happy oh, are we doing Stevie Wonder? Oh, okay. Okay. Wait. Are we gonna do what? Okay. Okay. Let's do yours. One. Okay. Three, two, one. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Clarice. <laughs> it was your birthday on Tuesday, but it's actually coming yeah. out on Sunday. This episode. Hey, girl. How'd it go? <laughs> uh, I got. A lot of Moon Knight related presents that made me happy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you saw The Nun too. I saw The Nun too. And I saw <laughs> El Conde. I saw two horror movies, so that wasn't too bad. Mm. Um, that feels like the perfect Clarice Day. Mm. Two horror yeah. movies on your birthday. That'd be yeah. like, nothing could top that unless it was like Guillermo de Toro's birthday or Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or I saw the horror movies with Guillermo del Toro. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, next year if he wants to come hang out. Yeah, we'll throw it out there. It. <laughs> you would not be paying attention to that movie. Oh, if he was there, yeah. I feel like I feel like he look, he'd be very respectful because he's a good cinema watcher. But mm-hmm. I feel like he'd whisper some facts to me. And I'd be like, <laughs> no fucking way, Guillermo! I didn't know that. I've learned things. So you know what? It's it's Guillermo del Toro. I'm not going to shush that man. Um, so no, we're all good. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. Uh, Amon, you had a fun week. Tuesday, you had a fun Tuesday. I did have a fun Tuesday. So while you guys were watching The Nun Two, uh, I was talking with Celine Song uh, on stage at the Pitch House Central for a Q and A of past lives, which as we're about to discuss. It's a film that I think is pretty good. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I always enjoy doing uh, Q&As, especially at Pitch House Central, one of my favourite cinemas. So, yeah, that was mm. a lot of fun. What have I done this week? Well, I had a nice little stay at Soho Hotel last night, which was kind of cool. Nice. Uh, courtesy of Sky to watch a new season of The Lovers, okay. which is like Johnny Flynn, which is kind of like him doing... Like Hugh Grant, but like about a boy Hugh Grant kind of thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely convinced um, about the kind of setup for the series. He's like a political journalist who's called like Seamus O'Hanagan or something, but it's like a very posh English guy. And then the other character, uh, I forgive me, I forget her name, but she's like an like a Northern Irish like shop worker and. Like their meeting comes, like their meet cue is he's trying to escape some like thugs and she's trying to blow her head off with a shotgun. Wow. <laughs> and the, he stops her 
And then suddenly it's like, and it's kind of weird because it's like, wait, is the conceit of this that she suddenly wants to live for a guy? Mm. <laughs> Which is kind of like, ooh, maybe this is also something that got developed in 2003 too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I kind of love Johnny Flynn, so I'm kind of very much here from it. And I love the uh, Scrotal Recall, which is the original name for, what was it called, Lovesick, which was a really great uh, romantic recall. comedy season. <laughs> yeah, it was great. So, so I'm going to see how it goes uh, on that one. Uh, but yeah, well, maybe in another life, I will <laughs> love the series. Uh, but until then, let's take a look at a few more lives in the distant behind in the past. <laughs> lives of past. Days of our past lives. Past Days lives. Days of lives of future past. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> yes, here you go. What a good story this is. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. I think I just missed him. Did he miss you? Let the days go by, let the water hold me down. Let the days go by, water flowing underground. Into the blue again, after the money's gone. Once in a lifetime, water flowing underground. Best that it ever was. Oh, love it. Nora and Haesung, two deeply connected childhood friends, are rest apart after Nora's family emigrates from South Korea to Canada. Decades later, they are reunited for one fateful week as they confront destiny, love, and the choices that make life. Written and directed by Celine Song in her feature directorial debut, it stars Greta Lee, Teo Yu, and John Magaro. Now, um, I have to say, I, told, I text you guys immediately after I finished this interview. <laughs> But I honestly, I had it. I was having a day. <laughs> I managed to make like three errors, <laughs> like miss, like faux pas, like miss things. But luckily, Celine Song, Celine Song, is like that gal. She just was like rolled with it. She's super cool. So I'm just gonna say it before it is. Like I had like a breakup playlist, and there was like a Bob Dylan song, but the Leonard Cohen song Suzanne, which is on in the, in the film, that's in it. I said Bob Dylan said Leonard. I called it Zoom instead of Skype. And then I, I don't know about you guys, but have you heard of the actor Michael Angarano? Yes. I always confuse him with John Magara, especially when they got beards. <laughs> so yes, I called it Michael. Anyway, I decided to keep it all in this interview, but it's really fun. We got to talk about um, kind of like her theatrical expertise, bringing that into like the cinema, like looking a lot about like how she's telling stories about two cities and visualizing that using the cinematic language. Talking about, um, I and again, of course, like one of the big things I love about this film we'll get into is like how much um, like these two soft boys are like obsessed with this really ambitious, assertive, like forward girl woman who knows her shit. It's like, love this, <laughs> love this for us, love this for the culture. So please enjoy this very relatable, real, no cinematic glow or Hollywood <laughs> glaze interview with Celine Song. Uh, Celine Song, welcome to the Fate of Black podcast. Such a pleasure to have you with us. So nice to be here. Um, I, um, I, so I saw the film 
yesterday and I thought I'd get all the way through without shedding a tear and then you got me at the end um uh, <laughs> has it been really I I'm always because it's such a personal story for you as most of your work is has it been really interesting to see kind of how different people respond and their feelings towards it and I because I mean I, I feel like so many can put themselves in this the really the kind of localization but universal themes that everyone kind of goes through Totally. Well, I think that what I've been really loving, and I think that this is the best way to watch the movie anyway, which is for it, let it, is to let the story get under your skin a little bit and to have a kind of really personal reaction to it. Because I believe that the movie means something different depending on who you are and where you are and where you are in your life and also what kind of love you're in at the moment. Right. So I think some of it is about like, you know, you can be a, a single person who is like uh, or you can be with someone, you can be 16 or you can be 60. You could be just coming out of a breakup and you might have just started a new love. Right. Too. So I think that in that way, I think that how you respond to the film actually should speak so much about where you are in the world or like, um, you know, uh, who you are, too. And I think that's really the uh, at the heart of what what this project is. Yeah. Well, as someone who's uh, been through a breakup recently and had that very same feeling <laughs> on my breakup playlist, I was like, oh, it got me under my skin immediately. Oh, you mean like, oh, you mean the, do you mean the Leonard Cohen song? The Leonard Cohen, that's it. Yeah. The Leonard Cohen one. Sorry. I've got my list. No, I don't, I don't, I just don't, I don't have a Bob Dylan song and I don't want the Bob Dylan estate to be bad. Oh no, <laughs> you know what? It, no, it is the, it, I had a different Bob Dylan song. There were a lot of um, croony, yeah. croony songs on there. It was great. I needed it to feel. Of course. And again, going for something that's quite autobiographical, I suppose, where do you find when you're writing characters that might have some basis in your own experience? How do you go from that departure and trying to create this person who is like, you know, might have some things in common and might have similar experiences, but actually you're trying to create them as a character in their own right, where it doesn't have to particularly be or necessarily have everything in common with you to create that kind of own autonomy within the kind of cinematical writing space that you're working in. Totally. I mean, I think that the main thing that uh, is the heart of it is, is uh, it's really about the heart of the character or the whatever the truth or the core of the character that we're talking about and then from there i'm not really precious about um how the rest of the character is going to shape up as long as the truth about the character in connection to the story i think is at the end of the day uh the most important part of the uh uh, creating that character. And of course, like, it, you know, there's a very real process of working with an actor in creating the characters themselves. And they have to bring their own intimate understanding about humanity and their own uh, love and life and how their lives have been, their ex own experiences to be able to depict it uh, well and depict it accurately and very deeply and in a way that's connected to their souls. So I think so much of that is all uh, you know, so much of it is connected to uh, the way that I'm thinking about these characters. And I think at the end of the day, um, these are film characters. I feel like if uh, uh, real humans uh, don't have uh, neat arcs, you know, <laughs> or like, or, uh, or a psychology that can be drawn out in language. And I think that uh, what's amazing about film characters, and I think that's the fantasy we all come to watch, it's that, for example, they're able to uh, communicate beautifully. Right, which is something that I think we all wish that we could do. I don't have uh, uh, fantasy elements in the film, uh, and the movie is uh, 
uh, pretty, pretty rooted in uh, real life. And it's about ordinary people having an extraordinary moment, but not a moment that is uh, uh, impossible to imagine or, or really rare or something like that. It's a kind of an extraordinary moment that might pass any of us. And I think in doing all of that, the part of it, I think the film that is uh, a fantasy is how well they're able to care for each other and how clear they can be in their language. Because I think that those are some of the things that we like, you know, communicating your own feelings. It's like such a difficult thing. It's very hard to be articulate. But of course, because they're film characters, they're able to they're able to efficiently communicate how they feel in a way that is, um, of course, uh, you know, uh, that implies such depth, right? And I think that's what we all uh, wish that we were able to do. So to me, I'm like, that's really the fantasy part of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I suppose also when you're doing your theatrical work, how much does that, I suppose that experience, that kind of how you, how that kind of medium with which, you know, cause cinema, you've got like the focus on the face, like you can have, you can express things. You don't, you, there's a bit of nuance there. Whereas in the, in a stage, you kind of have to express a bit more, a bit more. <laughs> so I suppose how much yes. were you adapting or like bringing your theatrical background and like writing for theater into writing in this realm? Well, I think that it has still at the end of the day to do with uh, story and character. What I really realized in, uh, uh, directing this film is that um, actually the things that I knew from working in theater for 10 years, which is, you know, story, character, dialogue, um, blocking, things like that, those are things that I actually are asked of the film director to know the answers to when they're uh, making the movie. So I realized actually I have such a wealth of experience and skill set that I brought from theater um, to uh, move into film. I think, of course, the filmic language is a very different thing, but I think that, you know, it, it, the, as long as the, the, uh, language, um, as long as you know, the language in any of the mediums, I think that it, the translating that language to another, uh, medium is, uh, it's just a matter of, uh, your own, your own rigor, right? It's, it's a matter of your own feeling of like, okay, so is this is this the uh, completely the uh, the best way to do this in this particular medium? And I think that it's like sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes you're borrowing things from theater because actually they have it figured out in some way. So for example, that scene in the in the kitchen in the bathroom between Nora and Arthur, where they're talking about uh, her friend and how she feels about it and everything. It's like, well, that's, uh, you know, I put, put one a camera in one place and then the actors move around it. They, you know, they they move around it as though it's a stage that's been set and there are ways to see them. Um, the whole time they're the whole time they're in the frame in some way, either through reflection or just, uh, by walking through the frame. And I think that, um, that is something that I only made sense to me because I know that, uh, you can really focus on the conversation and you feel immersed in the conversation if you don't move the camera. And for a moment there, we forget about the camera in a way that, you know, in a play, eventually you forget that you're an audience staring at a stage, right? So it's kind of like, there are ways in which that there are some theatrical, uh, tricks, you know, for example, in the opening when she turns and looks at the camera, it's breaking the fourth wall. It's a very common thing in theater, uh, more rare in film. And it's like that kind of a thing. It's like of, uh, you know, implicating the audience or uh, welcoming the audience into the 
film or into the mystery of the film, especially who these three people are to each other. I think that moment, for example, is something that uh, was pulled straight from uh, theater. Mm. Yeah, it reminded me of um, watching Opening Night and, you know, the, I don't know, at the mm. end of it where they're like, you're in the audience and you see from the cameras between the heads and you're kind of, because the most of the people who are watching are kind of seeing this as kind of a show. So I love it. I felt yeah. it. Um, I, also, <laughs> I, I always really love, there's a moment when they initially start um, uh, conversing on Zoom and I love the kind of cuts away to like the cityscapes of, uh of from Seoul and then obviously to New York and the kind of idea that these like one tiny these one people in each space are like talking to each other in a sea of millions and I suppose again but that's something that obviously is you know be footage like how you wanted to create a flow between this kind of dialogue across two ponds so working with your kind of like cinematographer and working out those bits to kind of lift it where it's not just looking at the actors seeing them but actually again taking over that space Totally. Well, I think that the uh, the uh, work that cinematographer and I were doing most of all is for uh, every uh, moment to feel like the way that it might be experienced um, on a pretty human level. So even with Skype's sequence, the thing that we, of course, wanted was um, for it to be uh, always be done practically. And I think that's something that I really felt was important in depicting Skype because it is so easy for Skype, Skype to feel too clean because technology is not clean. And I think that especially technology of 12 years ago was not clean. So I think so much mm -hmm. of it had to do with the um, making sure that the tangibility or the or the way that like life really feels or like the texture of life and I think that those are the things that uh, we were um, talking the whole time about depicting because we felt it was so important to depict it um, mm. because it's not really about uh, the the what is it the the glossy fantasy of of extraordinary people. It's about um, ordinary people, again, going through something mm. um, extraordinary, you know, and then after the mm. film, they're going to go back to living their ordinary lives. It's just something extraordinary that happened to them. So, so much of it, I think that we were interested in, like, you know, like we had to do the Skype section. Um, we built two sets and we connected it with a cable. So the actors were acting live with each other over their monitor. So instead of doing screen replacement, so the the there was a cable that connected these two sets where they were. Uh, of course, the connection was happening through that, and we put a throttle on it, and we were able to control uh, how bad the connection was. And sometimes wow. we could even and sometimes we could even freeze it exactly when we wanted. And actors didn't know exactly when we were going to freeze it. So uh, they were sometimes, uh, you know, taken aback uh, while they were shooting. They knew it was coming, but they didn't know exactly what timing that was going to happen. So I think some of it is really about um, trying to do something in a way, trying to depict technology in a way that is uh, more tangible, because I think that um, that's how we experience our lives, you know? Yeah. Did I say Zoom? earlier because I feel like I'm so used to Zoom and I know it's Skype and it's I funny because you and I'm sorry I'm sorry it was Skype yeah. <laughs> um but it's funny also because you froze a little bit in there and I was like wow this is actually meta interview <laughs> <laughs> exactly I think that's how I feel but I think it's like I th I've said Zoom before because I think because we really uh very recently were deep in Zoom land so I think I we just feel like things Zoom but in fact you know 
yeah we say google all the time now and it's like it's a brand it's oh like saying God. hoover the products become or sellotapes the products become oh yeah exactly <laughs> it doesn't even matter that it's like it could be any kind of a black car and they're just like uber right yeah yeah you exactly <laughs> you, you google it and, and you're like and you're like we don't what do you mean you we google it but it's like we know we google it it just means we're not asking jeeves anymore <laughs> oh, yeah exactly <laughs> Um, um, I, I'm currently uh, in the middle of watching season three of The Morning Show with Greta in it. Oh! I love, and she's great. She's got a very different haircut. Oh, it's very interesting. Um, oh, I, love yeah. to talk a, <laughs> I love to talk a little bit about that relationship. And, you know, again, yeah. as you said, very bringing her stuff to the character, like character and the kind of, you know, with Michael and Teo as well. But with Greta, you know, I love this because I feel like, you know, she's often supporting not giving their time in the spotlight. And this feels like the perfect moment for her to kind of really show her range and depth. And I'd love to know a little bit about that process. Was there kind of like a lot of rehearsal period? Did you have a lot of chats over Skype (laughs) about it? Oh, we did. I mean, I think that, you know, when I uh, met her, I think she, because she auditioned for me and then I uh, saw her tape, I called her in. And then I think that in the conversation, we talked for, uh, you know, like, you know, two, three hours. And I think that at the end of the conversation, I knew that she was the right person for the role. And I think so much of it had to do with her being a, a great match um, uh, in her soul for the character, I think more than anything. So, and it's like, in a, and it's always ephemeral. It's never quite like a casting is never something where it's like such a clean cut thing. It's like, you can't really explain why exactly, mm. but you just have a feeling and that's really was the way that I cast, um, honestly, all three of them, all three, you know, Teo and John as well. I cast them uh, uh, from the, uh, just a feeling at the end of the day. And I think it's like, and I think all of that. And then, you know, after I, I cast her, I think that, you know, then it, the work sort of begins for um, how we're going to, uh, create this character together for this film. And I think it's like, it really is such an intimate relationship. And we, I felt so connected to her the entire time that I was working with her. And we just felt so, we felt really close. And I think, and I feel the feel that way about the guys as well. I felt um, so close to my principal cast because you just needed it to be like that because it, it, we're depicting something that is um, really delicate and uh and has to feel believable on the human level it has to be immersive in that way and that's very um and i don't think you can do that if you don't know the person you know no we got to know each other really really well i've done another faux pas i was like michael and in my head i always get john mangara and michael angarano no worries i'm having a day um i'm not even going to edit this out (laughs) this is real (laughs) This is not the fantasy interview. Right. This is the real interview. Um, oh my god! Um, I, I, I think also what I really love about Nora as a, as a character is, I think I wrote a book last year called Strong Female Character, and I feel like that that word has become such a weird, like, uh, toxic label for a lot of any complex character. But for mm-hmm. me, like, she's the perfect example of what I consider like the kind of best form of a strong female character in the sense she's kind of like unapologetically herself. She's not kind of, she doesn't have to be an action hero. She doesn't have to be literally physically strong, but the way that she is forward, she's assertive. She knows the kind of what she wants and the whole unwillingness to kind of test her, you know, change her life for a guy, but then also having 
the ability to cry at the end and have all these emotions. Um, I'd love to understand like a bit more of like what you feel about, you know, how you, the women that you present, especially, you know, of, of coming from, you know, obviously the intersectionality of Nora, but also mm -hmm. other characters, because it was just like so refreshing to see these soft boys like obsessed with her. Well, I think that what's so, uh, uh, what's so important is that I think that there is a world of, I think that as though we sort of uh, live in the modern world, there are so many uh, modern people and modern women who uh, live, uh, you know, uh, being very thrilled by their work and to pursue dreams of their own and will, when any given moment, will be able to choose themselves. And that requires so much internal strength and, uh, and so much, uh, so much power or like, you know, power that they, uh, feel about their own self, which is where all power comes from. Right. So I think that it's feeling the, the, when we talk about empoweredness, I think that that's the thing that, um, I was thinking about. And I just know that I just see these women all the time and they have no trouble being loved. And I think that's what I think was the really important about depicting these characters. I think sometimes there was a very old idea of, uh, uh, feminism, where the best that you could ask for is to, um, you know, like have a woman who is like, who is really as good as the boys at work, and you're mm -hmm. like, and then right, and then of course there is a question of like, well, is the, uh, and then is that person able to figure out their lives personally, right? Yeah. But I think that right yeah. now, I think, I think most modern women I know who is very focused on their work, who very much choose themselves, they're able to hold really healthy and wonderful relationships uh, with men. I think that's actually a very real thing that uh, happens. But I think it's like, I think it's still something that is hard to take for granted, you know? <laughs> So yeah. I think maybe one of the yeah. things that I was, I think, um, you know, to be honest with you, I wasn't really thinking about all of these things as I was working on the movie. Because <laughs> when I was working on the movie, I was just interested in the character of Nora and character of Nora, who is, um, uh, who is meant to be uh, such an ambitious New Yorker more than anything. So I think it was very much focused on that. And then I think that after the movie was made and after I uh, saw the way that, um, uh, uh, the audiences took to that character. And then of course the uh, women and working women and, and modern women took to that character. I think that that's what really honestly taught me that that's who Nora is. So I'm not really speaking about um, what my plan was all along for it. I think my plan all along was for this character to feel real to me as in like uh, this character to feel full and real to me and, uh, and lovable in the middle of yes. all that. And then I think that uh, in doing so, I think that there is a um, way that the audience uh, took to that character that I think is, I found very moving. So it really was like Nora herself uh, taught me that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm in the middle of a Sex and the City rewatch. And so it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like seeing like these kind of, I don't know, there is an idea that being ambitious, being like you're difficult to love. So having something mm -hmm. where it's like, no, actually that's what, that's what's so attractive about her, her like assuredness and yeah. ambition. And that there's a, there's a relationship there and support. Exactly. And I think that the, that's also giving uh, men not enough credit. Because I feel like I know so many men in my life who is very interested in a person who's ambitious and properly ambitious. And I think that, um, in fact, like, I think that's a part of their, uh, part of why they love them. And I think that's true. And I think that does, uh, I do think that there is a kind of a funny thing where at the end of the day, it is kind of a, 
uh, weird way of um, not not um, giving uh, men modern men enough credit, you know, yeah. uh, when it yeah. comes to, uh, there are actually men who are interested in somebody like Nora. And actually I meet them all the time. You know, I know them. And in fact, in making the movie and releasing the movie, I've, I've met more of them because of the movie, you know, well, if there's any single ones, send them my way. <laughs> okay. <All> okay. Right. <laughs> Um, um, I love this. I'm using this now as a dating uh, platform. My, fi my final thing, I was reading yes. uh, something recently and you said um, some of five of your favorite films. And I love that you have yeah. like Age of the Tomorrow on there, which is yeah. a particular fave of mine, specifically yeah. as someone who's like really got into yoga recently. And now can you do like mm. the vinyasa that Emily Blunt oh does? Isn't that amazing? And every time I do it, I feel like I'm her in Edge of Tomorrow. So I'd love I to love like... It. I love that. And you've done like, you've done, worked on Wheel of Time. So I'd love to know if like, is there a, is there a sci-fi epic? Like, would you love to explore space? Especially as this one is so grounded in reality. Would you like to just go to the moon? Oh, I think that, you know, I know that uh, everything that I do, I really have to feel on some level that it is very different than the thing that I made. So I think that it's like, you know, I think it's really a matter of like, you know, I'm going to keep making movies and I am excited to find out what I'm going to do next. <laughs> well i'll be watching thank you so much <laughs> thank you thank you so much so i think it'd be really cool to get in first about how i uh, how, there's a lot of people talking about like the emotional core of this film and i want to know really um uh what point did it really get you in the feels because i says i said silly and it was like I thought I'd survive. And then the final bit got me sobbing in my seat. I was sat next to you, Clarice. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, sobbing might be exaggerating. There was just strong tears, action, and I had to get a tissue out of my bag. Um, Clarice. I um, I didn't cry. I'm really sorry. Wow, she's like, cold, dead, dead inside. <laughs> Clarice, go to I... the hospital right now. You need to be checked out. But this is the thing. <laughs> I look, I think I really liked this movie a lot and mm. I I found the character of Nora the Greta Lee character fascinating mm. but I think this is one of those things where it was sold to me I saw the trailer multiple times I saw people's reactions I don't think I read a full review but you you know you see stuff on social yeah. media mm -hmm. and it was sold to me as this like love yearning oh missed romance yeah like really emotional film and that's not what I experienced to me instead I will say I think the very last shot that got me a little bit because mm. um the film to me is is like the mystery of Nora because I really was trying to figure her out and and I found her so mesmerizing and fascinating about you know does she actually love Hei Sung? Is that real romantic love? Because I didn't really feel that. Or is is she kind of obsessed with him because he's a reflection of this alternate life that she could have had in uh, Seoul, in Korea, if she hadn't left when she was a child? And I think, you know, as someone who has moved countries at very similar age, I... Um, really related to parts of that story and I really understood it but I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't like oh, like smacked in the face with emotion because I don't think to me that's the kind of filmmaker that Celine Song is I thought that 
like her characters are very mature they're very self-aware <laughs> and it's like real like fucking adults dealing with difficult emotions mm. uh, which I think is such a strong contrast to passages which is maybe more how my brain works mm-hmm. where it's mm. like ah! <laughs> um but yeah mm. I think that's the thing I'm so don't get mad at me everybody that because I didn't cry I still really like this I think I just had a different experience yeah and I well I think that's what she's saying everyone can bring their own experience to it and I think one of the big things is the way it's so grounded in reality and doesn't try to be this melodrama you know what I mean it's not trying to it's keeping like this is the real conversations that people have and I think that's why it took me so long to kind of like get to that point where I was bubbling and building um Amon I suppose that's why we love to how well do you think it articulated the especially the kind of what isn't because a lot of thing isn't said this is not a very verbose film mm. um a lot of it is about kind of like looks and mm. trying to in like interpretation and miscommunication or I suppose also trying to in a lot of interiority and kind of trying to work out what's going on with these characters but also the way the again obviously Nora being the linchpin but like seeing how like John Magara interacts with like uh, Nora and trying to understand where she's at right now, mm-hmm. like uh, Hai Song and Taeyu Yu trying to work out like, okay, where do I stand mm-hmm. with this again? And, and then also her trying to unwrap her feelings about the situation as you um, mentioned, Clarice. I thought she did an exceptional job of all of that. You know, when I was uh, doing the Q and A with her on stage, we were talking about the long pauses. It's so funny. At one point in the film, there's a, uh, Norva is in the class and she gets paid a compliment. We we really like what you did with the long pauses. <laughs> I feel like Norva and Celine are the same in that regard because there's a lot of long pauses. And what Celine said was that with a pause, what matters is the dialogue before and the dialogue after. And I think she's absolutely right. And not only does she nail that, but the acting as you say there's so much in the facial reactions of all three of the leads here um which say so much and to answer your earlier question about which scene really got me there was a number but there's a skype conversation between uh nora and Sung that really impacted me um it's sort of i don't want to sort of get into too spoilery the territory here but they have sort of re-met up at this point sort of in their sort of adult lives. Um, but Norva makes a decision in this Skype conversation that alters their relationship. And the pauses in that scene are really felt and impactful. Mm. Then you also factor in the cinematography and what it's doing because uh, Hei Sung's Skype uh, sort of, you know, uh, Hei Sung's call, his, his, his video is all dark so Nora can't really see his reactions whereas it's not the same for Nora it's really really interesting what they're doing mm. there so yeah, yeah I I thought it was exceptional and this does yeah. it, 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 it flabbergasts me I know that we I, I mean th- this is a year that has had many really great directorial debuts um I think this might be my favorite of the bunch but it, it's just to, to, to be this assured and this patient patient with the storytelling first time out the gate i know she has history as a playwright but it's still really really impressive Mm. and that kind of comes through certainly when you think about it there's not really much 
happening like mm. as in there's not you could do this as a stage play Absolutely. but I really like but things that stuck out with me is the way that we saw like the cinematography and the way that um no even from the opening sequence like I love the bar mm. it's kind of like we're watching in there's that kind of like before with the voyeurs watching into his life and guessing and you know guessing about these lives that bar feels like one of these kind of like I don't know like kind of a kind of like a bar that's been in New York for like, like the thirties, like a pro, you know what I mean? Mm. It's like got so many histories, so many people have stood there and so many lives have passed through it. And I feel like it has all that kind of, like the kind of very like textured, like the brownness mm-hmm. of it, like the kind of, yeah, all things like that. But also I love the way that she uses um, uh, like the cityscapes of Seoul, like in comparing and using di- using that as the backdrop when they're talking, especially for the era where they're on Skype. Mm-hmm. Where they're not actually meeting in per- person makes it a bit more visually interesting. Um, Clarice, like, was there anything about particularly the way it was shot and certain scenes that you felt were quite powerful? I think it struck me that it was all very deliberate, which is, I guess, why I reacted to it more. Like, I don't know, I always divide like an intellectual way of watching a movie and an emotional. I think it's like two different parts mm. of the brain. So I think 100%. to me, it was it was such an intellectual experience because I could see just the carefulness of, of every, as you said, not a lot of dialogue, but every little piece of dialogue is, is very symbolic. There's a shot where they're looking at the Statue of Liberty mm. and Hey Sung says, Oh, she's turned away again, against for us. And it's like, Oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, and when the two kids, first say goodbye yes. the way that the shot is combined oh god yeah the split pass like it's very just which i think is is so natural to theater you know because you have to you have limited stage work limited props so i think also you're not you have to create so much a sense of illusion yeah. that everything becomes symbolic so i think she's really transferred that over uh, and the thing with the the inyun, which is the oh, Korean yes. concept of the past lives, that like every time people cross paths, it's like mm. layering. Uh, I can't remember the metaphor, but I was thinking of like you know mifo pastry, like all the little layers of pastry, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's eight thousand layers, and that's when you get married. But mm-hmm. this takes place across multiple lives, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that when she first tells that story, I then started noticing that she had a lot of extras like crossing in and out of the frame or you'd see people kind of making out in the background and you're like, ah, they are also in young. (laughs) But we don't know their story. And that's kind of, Mm. I really appreciated that level of of conscientiousness and detail. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Um, Because we've mentioned a couple of times about sort of the romantic love nature of this film. And there's definitely that element to it. And I don't want to get into the spoilers at all. I think the ending is magnificent. But for me, when you look at it as platonic love, the meaning of the movie and especially the ending changes a little bit. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. I feel like it's definitely not platonic on one side. That man is in love. I mean, yeah, 100%. And that was like, it was his... His, I mean, we. I, I agree with you. I think, I think. Don't get me wrong. I think there is an element of that, and it kind of the question of what is childhood, what is their childhood, what was that relationship? Mm. I, I mean, throughout it seems he was pretty smitten with her. 
like from the get go. Yeah, no, he's um, like she 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 doesn't even remember his name initially. Uh, her mother is the one who reminds me of his name. Yeah, exactly. But I also think that's par for the course when someone leaves and you know. Yeah. Someone, someone stays behind, you know? I think sometimes that happens. I I don't know. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it enough. Maybe I need to sleep on that and come back to you. Yeah. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I just wanted to mention, like, just to jump off on what you were saying, Chloe, about, like, the intentionality of certain things. I mean, mm. even the fact that they shot in front of, like, a, a carousel um, yeah. in Brooklyn, and it was, like, getting, like, this is, like, they've known in such that kind of childhood in the background the child is mm-hmm. in the background but like it's of behind their life. glass but it's behind gla- away yeah from them. and funnily enough though watching the morning show they do another shot at that same place in brooklyn and greta lee is in the morning show um let's get into like performances um you know I, greta lee has always been an amazing supporting cast member and and even i would actually argue when you mentioned later but like the morning show she's really good in the third season mm-hmm. um I I I I love her so much in it. There's so much that she was doing, like her the way that she's eyes, the way she kind of like reacts. Like I love it. It's like doing a lot, but a little. Doing a, a lot with a little. Yeah. Um. Uh, just beautiful. What, what what stood out for you with Greta and any of the other car- uh, actors? I'm on. Yeah, I completely agree with Greta. At least, really, all three of them are magnificent. But Greta, I think, gets more to do than. Uh, the male leads here and she acquits herself very well the the restraint that she exercises at various points I think works beautifully um and I think T.O.U. is great but John Magara really stood out to me we've touched on it a little bit in terms of the lack of melodrama of this film I feel like nine times out of ten John Magara's character Arthur who is the American husband of Nora he is written as jealous he is written as angry and honestly they are not inauthentic emotions to have given some of what is going on in this movie. I love that they go a different way because I think it opens up a number of interesting storytelling possibilities and it makes it more mature, as you said, Clarice. But to have an actor be able to pull off a role like that where you do see some of the insecurities peeking through, but he's always trying to be understanding and do what's best for Nora and the honesty of that having coming through... That's a very difficult balance, but I think he pulls it off beautifully. Yeah, he's definitely an anxious attachment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a one bit where he says, um, where he's, he's like, oh, you're kind of like, you're the world, you're amazing. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, I'm a girl from Korea, that's it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an interesting thing in the way the dynamic of like, I suppose even the way that even Westerners, white Westerners kind of exoticize people from other things, like just because she happens to be like Korean Canadian, suddenly there's something about her that, Stand out, which I, again I quite like that the way that element ties into the character. Um, uh, Clarice, um, I mean, I quite like. I think Tao was doing the most, and I think it's interesting with a character like that, with an actor like that. Whereas you know we're so accustomed to kind of like the Americanism, the Canadian North Americanism of the actors and their kind of like the nuances of the way they deliver. Of course, when someone's speaking in a different language and also delivering, there can be some sort of like, I mean, I suppose a lost in translation, but I felt so much with what he was doing and how he was saying the kind of like slight mumbly way that he was working. What did you think? Yes. And also body language. There's a lot that when he's, he comes to New York to, I mean, it's in the trailer. They obviously meet physically (laughs) Mm. when he comes to New York to meet her. 
and he's waiting around and he's sort of like fidgeting with his pocket. Oh, yes! <laughs> I think like, I turned to you and went like, oh, <gasps> I want him so much. <laughs> genuinely so sweet. And I, again, I also found that character really interesting because he, he was so pure and so romantic that it was bordering on. I was like, is this like a manic pixie dream boy like representation of how she feels about the childhood that she left behind? Like, is he a real person? He's almost too nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that's deliberate. This is not as a criticism. I think there's a, there's the parts of the characters that I maybe didn't find relatable. I, I went, oh, but I, I feel like they're telling me something by being yeah. that way. And yeah. I think the the sort of largeness of his romanticism like worked really well because Nora is so not that at all. Yeah. Uh, that scene that I'm on that you were talking about, I won't say because it was spoiled, but something mm. she said really pissed me off. <laughs> and so I will say, testament to Greta Lee, that she like turned it around for me. There was a good <laughs> 20 minutes where I was like, I don't fucking like Nora. So, yeah. Uh, I think I know exactly what line you mean. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's based to, to, to say it in a way that won't spoil it. She, she says something that is a, a lie. And when she really in that situation should have just told the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think I've been in too many situations like that, that it triggered something in me. <laughs> I, was fur- I was furious for a good 20 minutes, mm-hmm. but it's cool. Yeah, She won't yeah. be back over. I'm team Nora. It's good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think with, with uh, Hai Sung, I, what I also liked about the character in that it's not like he was just like a piney person. Like he mm-hmm. was living his own life. He was trying to, but it's also that element. Like we all kind of wonder the what if, mm-hmm. the one that got away and a kind of rep, like, you know, kind of like, I suppose grappling with that. Um, I also really love the music in this. I felt like the soundscape found like a sound, it was like a sound bath. Like it just like the, it felt, it felt super relaxing and super like, warm it felt almost like asmr sometimes like in the sense of no like you know they get like i love that this is like himalayan gongs mm. <laughs> but you know it makes your ear like they, there's certain sounds and like got like certain things that you hit like on a xylophone or things like that where the way it was hitting was like this is rapidly incredible <laughs> i love it um amon tell me I love hearing Did other do people the damn talk thing. about film music. This is great. This is great. This is made my day. Love it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, Daniel Rossen and Christopher Bear, um, who are a duo called Grizzly Bear. Some of you may know their music. Uh, did, did the score for this and it's fantastic. Um, I just love how organic it feels and how wedded to the movie it feels. There are times when I almost didn't notice it coming in. It was just there. And... That is exactly the way Celine's song wanted it and directed it towards it. It just feels so beautiful and feels like it comes in the, at the right times as well. Um, so I, yeah. I really appreciated that. I thought it was fantastic. And I like how it adapted slightly when we went from Seoul to New York and like yeah. they had a slightly different kind of like um, uh, what texture, like kind of beat and something. Like yeah. it was a bit like hot, like harder yeah. in New York. Yeah. Soul, especially in the childhood bits. Yes, 100% correct. Um, there's a track called Across the Ocean, uh, which is my favourite track on the score. It plays when they're catching up via Skype. They have that montage where they're sort of getting uh, to know each other again. Um, that track is beautiful. The piano is so delicate. 
there's a, there's, a, there's a lovely little piano solo that goes sort of up and down like an arpeggio. It's fantastic. I highly recommend seeking it out because as as Hannah sort of mentioned, it's very soothing. It's very peaceful as well. Uh, so yeah, go to sleep on that on that thing. <laughs> yes, yes. Clarice, was there anything else that you wanted to add? I also really like the costumes. And I just want to also say again, like Hai Sung, I was literally waiting for the moment when he like pushed his hair back because as we all know, his hair, most men's hair looks sexy pushed back. If mean goes to as anything. <laughs> but bold men are the sexiest of all. <clears throat> yeah, sure. <laughs> I liked all their apartments. It was really mm. nice. But I think, again, I don't keep going back to the very, like, conscientiously designed, but everything was so immaculate. It was very immaculate without feeling like fake i mm. could imagine that very mature adults would live in those apartments mm. i have to say i also like the i know they're in it very briefly but the moms um yeah. i think the mothers are great i i love the, <laughs> um i love even like the detail of like when she when nora's in in new york we even see how long she's been on the phone to her mother, which is an hour. And I love that kind mm-hmm. of says so much to me of like, oh, they have a very close relationship yeah. if they're talking for that long. And then another way I saw that earlier on in, in the other side of it, we see the mother say like, you know, the way she kind of talks to Hai Song where he gets up, he's hung, hung over. And it's like, you're in a good mood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he does fuck all. And it's like, mums know, yeah. like mums yeah. have this like in, inherent understanding sometimes of their kids and mm. i just thought again doing so much with so little um yeah it's great so mm. should we go to uh, our screen stream or skip verdicts Let's do it. uh clarice screen yay i'm on screen this movie in your current life it's one of the best of the year yes screen in every life <laughs> please uh okay so uh, from one uh, romantic endeavor to another romantic chore. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what Hannah this, thought of this film. <laughs> this is my big fat Greek wedding three. A lot has happened since my big fat Greek wedding. Like I never left. Woo! My father passed away, and his last wish was for us to visit his childhood village and reconnect with our roots. So, we're having a reunion. We're going to Greece. Oh, yeah. One, two, three, four. And by we, I mean the whole family. Oh. Who wants souvlaki? Paging souvlaki. Anybody by the name of souvlaki on this flight? If we took a holiday, <laughs> took some time to celebrate, just one day out of life, it would be, it would be so, so nice. <laughs> the members of the Portokalos family head to their homeland of Greece for a heartwarming family reunion filled with love, twists and turns. Uh, after the death of Gus, who is like, yeah, the dad mm. with the Windex. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, there are a lot of family members in that movie, and mm. I've already forgotten. Yeah, <laughs> written and directed by Nia Vardalos. It stars Vardalos, John Corbett, who's also in just like that at the moment, right? He is. 
Aiden? He's having a moment. He's having Aiden. a moment. Mm. He's having a moment. <laughs> uh, Louis Mandalore. Uh, Elena Kemporis. Man- Mandal- <laughs> I don't know how else to say that name. <laughs> Mandal- Mandal- yeah, I'm not saying this Mandalorian. This, this made me laugh. <laughs> Maybe he is. I bet he gets that all the time now. <laughs> he probably does. Louis Mandalore. <laughs> Elena Kemporis. Gia Carides. Joey Fatone. Uh, Lainey Kazan. And Andrea Martin. I remember renting my Big Fat Greek Wedding one from Blockbuster, like the year it came out. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm i going to be honest, I didn't rewatch it. I didn't watch my Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. <laughs> Does anyone here have more experience with the franchise than I do who can maybe fill in comparatively where my Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 fits into the canon? My big like the Greek wedding, I believe there was like another wedding, and then they were trying to set up a lady, like the daughter with like a cousin. I don't know. Uh, the, I I I think I will argue this. My Greek, big fat Greek wedding one was a great film, a really great film. Yes, specific. I remember liking it. My big fat Greek wedding two was like, eh, why do we need this? Kind of like Mamma Mia, here we go again. Necessary? No. Uh, I believe there was also a, a short-lived TV series where John Corbett wasn't in it, but someone else played him. That got cancelled. And then now we're here with this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I need like a Nazaire evil eye to protect myself from this film. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm getting from the tone that this does not live up to the heights of my big fat Greek wedding one. No. No. <laughs> right. I mean, the highs weren't high though either. It yeah. was good. I mean, look, let's be upfront about this. This is a tourist board ad for Greece. Yep. <laughs> yeah. There were some very beautiful vistas on show. I don't know why they they could only film the Parthenon when it was uh, under, under construction. <laughs> <gasps> Are we not going to go visit it? It's like, why would you want to when it looks like that? <laughs> no, it's got scaffolding on it. We we didn't think to come at any other time of the year. I'm sure because they obviously have to do regular maintenance on it, but we didn't. Yeah, know. we just said shoot it now, guys. <laughs> okay. I also like obviously there is. There are lots of movies, okay, I could speak as an American, like, there are lots of movies about Americans of certain cultural heritages trying to go back to the the mother country and reconnect. And, you know, these stories are very, very wholesome because they're about sort of like rediscovering part of your identity that uh, some Americans feel sort of disconnected from. It's sort of complicated, also, sometimes I think it's a little bit nonsense because I watched a lot of the Irish American ones and it's like, what? you don't know anything about Ireland, okay? <laughs> but Amon, I mean, did you feel that kind of, since, did you feel any of that sincerity in the movie? Because I think the first one had a lot of that, of like, what does it mean to be Greek American? Mm. Um, disclaimer, this was my first... Uh, go at the Big Bad Greek Wedding franchise. I've not seen one or two. Um, so I should probably say that 
right at the time. And I assume not the TV show either. Not the TV show either, no. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine, I haven't seen one or two, but I've seen the TV show. That would be weird. Um, so, yeah, I I did feel the sincerity at points. And I do feel like that deserves brown knee points because we're living in a time when a lot of filmmakers, a lot of films in general, don't have much sincerity in them. And I appreciated that when I felt it. It was just very, very few and far between. And for me, this entire film felt like if I was to liken it to a song, they have all the right notes, but they're playing it in all the wrong tempo. Um, You know, J.K. Simmons of Whiplash would be very displeased watching this film. It's not his tempo. It was not my tempo. And to a point where it felt like not only was the editing very, very shoddy, but just the line delivery, the pacing of the dialogue. There's one moment where there's a big reveal and the line is, we didn't want you to find out this way. It doesn't land with any emotional impact whatsoever. It comes way too quickly and it just feels like the person is reading lines. It doesn't feel like it's that, that there's a rhythm to any of it. And that is how I felt watching too much of this film, unfortunately. Yeah, I like it's it's exactly the kind of film where it is well intentioned enough and yeah. sweet enough that I I didn't get actively angry watching it. Mm-hmm. Even though, yeah, it was kind of interesting. There's a whole storyline about um, Syrian people, Syrian refugees coming and living in Greece. And I, it's like, it's really nice and quite wholesome. But then I literally opened the news immediately after it. And it was a news story about like the really fucked up shit that's happening in Greece with refugees. And I was like, God, is this like some weird PR thing to try and, like paper over what's actually happening. It's like that sort of thing of is is having really wholesome, great representations of these things where everyone's united and there's there's no bigotry whatsoever and it's all great and fine. Like that can be good, but also is it damaging because it leads to people having really warped perceptions of what's really going on? I mean, yeah. Hannah, I mean, do you think do you did you feel like it, the the well intentionedness and also maybe talk about because it is a comedy. <laughs> talk about the comedy side of it. Did you laugh? Was it funny? Um. So on the well intentions, I it's well intentions, but like you know, <laughs> you know, the road to hell is good intentions, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I I felt that as much as I suppose I appreciated that one of the characters was a Syrian refugee. Um, you know, and they try to like make it like this is a very like sanitized version of what I mean, you have to look at anything that's going on in Greece. The way they were just basically just whitewashing Greece as this like lovely, perfect place that everyone's welcome. And even when there's a slight bit of conflict, I mean, that's the fact is, is like, you know, he says she's there's one bit like where she goes, she's a refugee, can't get married. And it's like, oh, well, we, you know, we didn't really didn't let John Corbett marry Nia Vardalos in the thing. And it's just like, oh, my God, this is like too much. For me, this is a really lazy film, a lazy storytelling, because it doesn't even have an idea. It kind of said, okay, like, it's like, um, you know what? We want to go on a jolly and film in Greece. That's like mm. the natural, natural, natural way that this film could go if you want to do a third one. Um, let's just, like, throw things at the wall and, like, see what kind of could work. So it's like, let's have an idea. Okay, so we want to we return, 
like the MacGuffin of this diary to the four friends, right, as a reason to go, why? Like, then we find out there's a, there's a there's another relative. Then we find out there's a whole thing with the two kids, the young girl, there's something about college, she's failing. And it's just like, what is going on? This has this is the most haphazard, like, uh, effort of storytelling I've seen in a very long time. It, I feel I have whiplash in moments where the way we switch scenes and switch mm-hmm. characters, like it doesn't make sense. The conflict in this is so flimsy. Um, and then the kind of re- resolution oh, yeah. is so easy. <laughs> so easy. <laughs> it's, ju- it's just insane. I did laugh at Andrew Martin because I think she's great. Andrew Martin, who's actually Armenian, but um, she, you know, she's been in Only Murders in the Building. She's in this great TV show called Good News. I don't know if you've seen that. And obviously she was in the original film. She's quite funny, but it, it also perpetuates these really, I, it kind of reminds me of Leap Year, this film, in the sense of like these really over the overt Greek stereotypes, um, which I kind of feel like, okay, I guess they're Greek, so they can they can talk, they can make the fun of themselves, but it also just felt like, what's it serving? And there was this one character, a mayor, who's like, it's like, oh, wait, let's have a non-binary character, but let's not actually say that they're non-binary. There's this, and their, their thing going is like, number one, the best. And it was <laughs> like, I this is grating on me. I find it mm. so boring. I don't know. Like, has have you seen Nia Vardalos, like what other things she's written? Because I was thinking about it. I feel like maybe like, my big fat Greek wedding was like a one hit wonder for her. And she's basically been trying to dine out on this franchise. I mean, the fact there's a franchise is, is insane to me, but mm. um, it's just, just a whole lot of nothing. Yeah. She did. Um, uh, someone was talking to me about it and I vaguely remembered her with Tony Collette. My Life in Ruins, she also, she did like that, which was a rom-com, I think, in Greece. <laughs> Connie and Carla. That my, right, I, I haven't seen, seen it. Well, I, maybe I have seen it. They were describing it to me and seemed vaguely familiar where it's like showgirls on the run, but it's not, so I'm like it hot. Um, so she's, she did quite a lot of stuff in the early 2000s, I think. Um, I did quite enjoy the, the, Greece number one just because that actor's delivery reminded me of every presenter at Eurovision <laughs> and you're talking about ASMR <laughs> sometimes something about Eurovision voice is really like <laughs> to my ears. and I was like I could just listen to this person talk all day I love what you know when they dial in at Eurovision and it's like yeah. hello <laughs> <laughs> hello I'm Evan no way <laughs> <laughs> I wish everybody talks like that all of the time but i don't watch your i don't like not eurovision i'm not eurovision fan so i just find it really they really labor that catchphrase yeah i don't know if that the actor was doing that on purpose or the character was written to be like a eurovision person but um this is how random it is it's like john corbett's like do you want to come for a walk with me and it's like okay no i've got to go find i've got to go find these three random men because i must i must return this diary about his time in america to these men even that payoff was like, so, like, did they show it? It's like, look, is this picture you? It's like, it, again, goes nothing with it. We didn't even like, I don't think they uttered a word, these men who were supposed to be like the the long lost friends. Yep, yep. And anyway, so John got, and he goes down to the beach, he's like, suddenly finds a monk on the beach. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's really <laughs> like, it's like, let's, it's like, it's like ad libs. Yeah. 
Oh, it's, you know what it's like? It's like doing you, it's like doing improv. It's like, yes, and <laughs> this is where it ended up. <laughs> yes. And I go down to the beach and find a monk and, and yes. And then I go to the shops and I get really drunk because everyone gives me some alcohol shots. Yes. And I'm also, uh, an illegitimate child of someone and it's like is that's how it feels it's like so random and it just has no cohesion into anything remotely like like a a story that has like a clear motivation like what's what you you know what is this what is this film saying and i do believe that every film should say something but i just think like this is not you know, this is garbled. Yeah. Garbled. That's the best description of this film. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I will say I did laugh at Louis Mandalore, who plays uh, Nick Portocalos, uh, intermittently. Uh, his self-care routine, if we can call it that, uh, did get a few chuckles from me. Um, so that that was good. I also was trying to figure out where do I recognise this guy from? And I literally just figured it out two minutes ago. There's a show that I used to watch growing up called Martial Law uh, with Samuel yeah. Hung. And he was one of the detectives in it. Uh, so uh, yeah, that... he has got good... He has detective face. <laughs> he does have, like, police procedural face. <laughs> so, anyway, there, there we go. That. But yeah, you're completely right. The, the the resolutions especially just made my eye roll. There's a dynamic, if you, if you can call it that, between Paris and Aristotle that is resolved with one conversation late on in the film, and they could have had that in the first 15 minutes of the film. Easily. Yeah. Um, so it's just like, yeah, come on. You can, you, you can do better than that. You can make the storyline a little bit more tinged with conflict so that when the resolution comes, it's more satisfactory. It, 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 it feels good that they've arrived at that place. When it happens in this case, and not just with this storyline, but with many storylines, it just you just shrug at it. It's like, okay, that's fine. Moving on. And uh, yeah, that's not great. It made me laugh that all the characters the names that they chose are like Paris, Aristotle, Athena, (laughs) which obviously you, I think you will meet Greek people who have those names. But like, if you look at the cast list, the average Greek person is not named something from mythology. It's like (laughs) Elena. Yeah. Where was Zeus? (laughs) It was like the, when new characters kept introducing themselves and they were like, yes, I am Athena. (laughs) I would love, okay. (laughs) I would love to watch like a goggle box episode where it was just like Yorgos Lanthimos. (laughs) <laughs> watching my big fat greek wedding one two and three like i would actually just like you know or do like a live twitch where i could just watch him watching it <laughs> you know i would love my big fat greek wedding four that all the characters from this movie they go back to greece but they turn out it's like yorgos lanthimos world <laughs> and everyone's like yorgos lanthimos care they've like turned up in dog tooth <laughs> yeah what is what is this enclosure um, sorry, what are the rules? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, well, we're cousins. Yeah, cousin. Oh, they say cousin. That a lot. Yeah, it, every time someone said cousin, it did remind me of the bear, though. So that, I suppose that's what's a good thing about the, it. Remind me of a better thing. <laughs> sure. I also quite go. enjoyed the music again because I love European pop. So mm. I, there are parts of this movie that were built for me, <laughs> but I feel like. We're not going to get great answers for this, but let's see 
if we're going to screen stream or skip my big fat greek wedding three a month it's a skip for me hannah skip yeah is that, what's skip. is is skip does it also have an origin in greek <laughs> <laughs> i mean <laughs> 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 I want to get started with that story, that thing about everybody being related to Alexander the Great. I'm just going to, I'll leave it. <laughs> I am related to Hannibal Barca, so that I feel like that checks out. I'll allow that. Ridiculousness. Well, may more said. I, no, I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> not for today. Not for today. I would say instead of yeah, watching this. That's fake. <laughs> watch, um, watch Alps, which is the Yoga Science Boss movie that I feel is the least seen if you want i that's not what greece is actually like (laughs) (laughs) i'm not saying that it is but if you want something great and greek watch alps from olive groves to i actually don't know what kind of farm cow cow farm (laughs) dairy farm cow patch cow patch this is a life on the farm When my grandpa passed away, we went to his house and started clearing out his possessions. And one of my aunts found a videotape. Have you got your uh, video set up? I'm ready to play you some lovely pictures. Hi there. Charles Carson, <laughs> two men farm. This farmer, Charles Carson, a neighbor of my grandparents made this feature-length home movie. Hey, what are you doing here? It is a truly special work of art. I, I know that he did take sort of quite bizarre photographs of things, like Monty Python, really, when you think about it. It is a little bit reminiscent of the serial killer, Ed Gein. I can't tell if this guy is a genius or a psychopath. Country roads take me home to the place I belong, Kuman Farm, dead mama, take me home, country roads. Thank you very much. Thank you. DJ Hannah Flynn has ended <laughs> it uh, for another week. <laughs> Do you remember the year where that song was appearing in every movie? wild was he not in alien covenant the year that kingsman 2 came out it was in alien covenant kingsman 2 and another film as well i'm pretty sure uh, uh, logan lucky i think was it one of those yeah. films matters much more than the other <laughs> <laughs> i distinctly remember mark strong singing it in kingsman 2 um, he does because i watched that recently yeah, um not a good movie but it's much betterly used in Alien Covenant. <laughs> That's just true. Uh, a Life on the Farm. This is a strange story from Somerset, England, about a filmmaking farmer and the inspiring legacy of his long-lost home movies. And it's directed by Oscar Harding. Uh, so this is a very <laughs> quirky documentary. I guess I want to start by asking this. There's a lot about Charles Carson, who is the farmer at the center of the story, that is a little bit weird. Was there a point in this movie where it stopped being weird and started becoming something else for you? Because it kind of did for me, and I think that's part of what really works well about this movie. Clarice? I 
gonna be I okay. So I <laughs> I didn't I'm gonna be honest, I didn't love this. Oh okay. I didn't either. I honestly feel like I'm taking crazy pills because why is everyone like adoring this film? I didn't I didn't like I again it didn't make me angry. Mm. When I uh, maybe it did make me a bit angry. I I don't think the stuff was that weird. I trying to strip away the context of what the documentary is presenting it to you as mm. um it's outsider art it's a guy who is taking quite interesting pictures and they're described as home movies but i, I guess without spoiling like the entire story mm. there are things that he was doing with them which implies that he did not consider them home movies he considered them art that he wanted other people to see um and there's a stuff to do with his attitude towards death mm. which Somebody in the documentary points out is what used to happen historically all the time and is culturally really yeah. normalized, like different cultures, incredibly yeah. normalized to, uh, I don't know, is it okay to say what it is? I, I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about. Which is like well, surprise. we said dead mom. I think it's fair to say like. Yeah, so yeah. there's stuff with death photography, yeah. which obviously yeah. completely normal in the Victorian era and lots of other cultures will not immediately bury their dead. They'll have them out. They have like, is it, wakes is not, what's the word where you, the viewing of the body. The wake you have, you sit, you know, difficult like you sit shiver, you have a wake yeah. in Irish culture. So you might have the coffin there out for like people do in ve- various yeah. cultures. They actually do keep the the body available. I mean, look, funerals, right? But I guess, sorry, I just want to jump in like there because this is the thing that wound me up about this documentary. In a sense, it was a really unsophisticated, um, in unintellectual telling of something that could have been a really interesting jumping off point about cultural practices, what this person was doing. And it just did the bare minimum. I think the person who wrote this or directed it, like, I understand that these are interesting things, but it never went that bit further to try and contextualize, to bring it back. If this was like a Netflix, if I was doing, like, if I was doing this thing, it's a piece of journalism. Documentary, I think, is more journalism. Mm. The journalism in this is not at all up to, really up to standard. Um, If you're going to talk about, we used to, if you're going to have to talking head say, like, oh yeah, as you said, this was actually quite common. Let's go outside there. Let's zoom out and then zoom back mm-hmm. in again. Let's zoom out what's going on. Like th- the fact that this guy was sending his local neighbors, like these different tapes and all this type of stuff, mm-hmm. you could get into the way he was using social media, right? Using art to connect with and keeping updates to your life. Instead of an Instagram story, he was sending them the stories. Like you could talk about how that has evolved at the time. Look into the way home VHS was, you know, working and how he was editing them and all those things and compare them. Like they show, say, oh, it's kind of like Scorsese. It's like, then cut to something from Scorsese. Let's make this an interesting dynamic film that shows that someone's actually, I, I don't know. I think they just thought that the videos were strong enough. And it's like, after a while, this is like, with them on its own, that's just like a 20 minute film a short film. Mm. This is not a feature length film that said anything that interesting. And I'm sorry to say that Charles is not that interesting a person. He's, Mm. he's, he's, he's a bit eccentric, but like for me, what, what's the purpose? Why do I need to watch an hour and 15 minutes of this person's life? If you're not going to offer something more about like culture. And I think even some of the people, the talking heads they got, you know, 
Like, I don't really need an anecdote about some guy who worked at VHS magazine or camcorder magazine saying, oh, yeah, you know, we use the catchphrase. It's like, okay, like local, uh, all these talking heads, it's like, they're not really, a rep- it's quite repetitive. I don't know. Sorry, I've said too much, but I've said a lot, but yeah. I think it's, it's for me, the issue was, yeah, it's the, and a lot of documentaries are guilty of this, especially, I mean, you talked about, mentioned Netflix, the ones where it's, where maybe, yeah, obviously this is a very low budget documentary is trying to get attention to itself. So it's an understandable impulse, but I think that can be quite damaging in a documentary like this, where it's so overblown where, yeah, they, they say like, he's like Van, oh, I'm going to do the pretension Van Hock or Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. Um, they compare him to that. Um, or, but then also somebody describes this stuff as being like Ed Gein, which I found quite offensive because that's quite an accusation to say that what he was doing was in any way equivalent to a serial killer. Like that's quite morally dubious. The guy's not around anymore to defend himself. Um, and I think, I think as Hannah, you mentioned, like there are angles into this. And I also found the outsider art angle really interesting of like, how do we define art? And God, think about all the art that's undiscovered and hiding away in people's houses or just hasn't been distributed widely enough. But they sort of act in the documentary like they've never heard of the concept of outsider art. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for people who yeah. don't know, it's like outsider art is basically like people who are, are not trained and are just making art and like haven't gone to school and aren't really like pursuing it in a high professional level, but who can still make incredible stuff. I think this is... I wouldn't say like an incredible example. I found the stuff interesting, but you could make a documentary about that. But I don't think you need to be like, he was Van Gogh meets Ed Gein. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a line in it as well, and it really annoyed. Well, one, also the music was terrible. The music, I feel like they just, uh, that, I don't know know how you felt about the music, come on, but it was honestly the most cliched, like. It It felt a little generic. It felt tacky, yeah. the way that it was implemented. Um, it felt like they'd basically gone on a website. And again, I don't want to, you know, if they can, it's a low budget thing, but it felt low budget, but not like low budget, high caliber. Mm. <laughs> Even the font choices I found frustrating. Mm. It felt like a student film. Like that sort of kind of like, we're going to use, you know, I mean, uh, I felt like with the music, it felt like they got it from a website. It was like free free <laughs> you can have this free a comment like a creative commons license or something like that it just it, it was just so over the top and also again go back to me and there's a bit where he says um he goes because he says oh there was a one moment where he said self-take photo the like, key invented yeah, the selfie yeah. and it's like <laughs> did he though did he invent the selfie no he didn't people have been taking self-portraits since millennia, please retire. People saying that just because someone put self take photo, they invented the selfie, and that's how that's what I mean. There was no there, a lack of discernment of what actually was like relevant. What was it? It was just again like not tight enough. And it could have been like as you, like if it was about outsider art, this could have been a segment, um, a great exploration of how VHS. Like um, there was a documentary came out recently called uh, about Nam Joon Pak, who is a South Korean artist who worked in the visual video space and using like that, creating like the, you know, the kind of information superhighway. where he kind of invented that con- the concept of that, like using VHS at a time when, you know, it wasn't seen as any sort of high art. And it's kind of like, that was a really interesting way of looking at the culture and where it sounds of it. This was just so close up 
that it didn't, it, it felt like this is a great documentary for your mates or your mum or the people who were involved in it. But like, I don't think it offers you much more. Again, what, what do we take away from it? What do we learn about our culture by zoning in on Charles? Ooh, this is interesting. I mean, that's not rhetorical. Please tell me, tell me, please, unless I missed it. <laughs> well, I was a little bit more charmed uh, by this film than you guys clearly were. Although I find it fascinating listening to both of your thoughts and I don't necessarily disagree with some of them. I think for me, the thing that I really latched on to, there's a line in the film where one of the talking heads says something like, art should not be the province of only professional artists. And the fact that Charles Carson, the farmer, was able to put together these home videos and with with some interesting sort of editing skills way back when, I found to be really interesting in terms of someone just pursuing their, maybe not craft, but just putting their art out there and to have the art sort of be recognised and to have this film go on the journey it has gone, I find you know, a lot of you know, stuff about that to be heartwarming and charming. Um, so yeah, did, sure. did, did, did that work for you in any, in any way? Sure. Like, it's, there's certain elements that are endearing, but again, I got bored. Mm. I was bored about maybe like half an hour in when I realised they're just repeating a lot of the same shots. And I don't really feel like, I mean, when it was getting to death, but I just don't think it dug deep enough. And it just felt, I, I don't know why I'm supposed to be interested in a lot of people kind of saying a lot of the same things as each other. And yeah, it might be a point, but there was a lot of talking in there. I feel like this could have been, but it had far more impact if it was either, if you either, I was like, either make it a short film, keep it as what you've got, like shorten it down, or actually do like a bigger comment. But it seemed like the director felt that actually this is interesting enough, the personal angle of this person, but not trying to be a dick, but like not every person warrants a documentary. <laughs> Grace, any final thoughts? Well, I think it's it's also the idea, there's a false idea in the documentary that what he was doing was like unique. I think that's the problem. And I, I found it just kind of frustrating how front-loaded it was with like, we're going to reveal this crazy dark secret and really fucked up. And they have Karen Kilgraff from My Favorite Murder, who's a bit of like a... I did used to listen to it, and then I quickly realized it's quite morally dubious, that podcast. <laughs> um, and I think the second she turned up, I was like, oh, this is a red flag. Because it's this idea of, like, kind of turning people's lives into, like, sideshow attractions. Yeah. Which I will say... This documentary, it wasn't that bad. It was trying to veer away from it, but I definitely think the first 20 minutes or so really felt like that. And then they wanted to kind of flip it and reverse it and go, well, actually, he was this guy who had all these friends and this life story. Um, but they also, they, they kept like mentioning that his health issues and mental health issues, just kind of like really dancing over it when I think, it, it's weird to to say that and say that maybe there's a little bit of sadness to behind what he was recording and then contrast that directly with the 
guys are weird for uh, filming dead people. Uh, but yeah, like, which again, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a weird thing. But yeah, exactly. It was like there's moments in it where it says, "Oh, that's when his mental health like it seemed to be an issue when he was started when he was setting up shots at his dad or the brother's or dad's funeral." And I was like, but again, I've seen things where like people are taking selfies next to their dead parents, right? And going like, or their dead grandparents, like oh, I'm posting on Snapchat and going like, oh, RIP grandma. It's like, again, that's a really interesting idea about our relationship with death and how we present it to the world, um, how we show that, how we mourn and grieve. But it didn't mm-hmm. really want to, it wasn't really interested in answering any of those kind of questions that a person like Charles presents. I think that's, you've hit that on the head. I think the story is interesting, but it's not unique. And I think that's the mistake that this documentary yes. made. Yes. by not going, this is really representative of a lot of things, actually. Yes. And going, let's look at different people's attitudes to death. Let's look at different types of uh, outside. Yeah. I remember when we did yeah. the Letitia Wright movie, The Silent Twins, about yeah. Yeah. June and Jennifer Gibbons. She was a uh, novelist. Talk about like hub, but I mean that's just because that's the first example I came up with. But like, there's loads of examples that you could bring in of of other people who just started like creating stuff, yeah, and not for really anybody in particular, or maybe for people, and and yeah, they didn't, they weren't trained as an artist, and to talk about that, like, is it as valid? I mean, obviously it is as valid, but you could still talk about that question. Mm. Like, there's so much, yeah, potential, but it's just weird to be like. Yeah. This is the weirdest thing ever. And I was yeah. like, no, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's basically that zooming out. At no point did it really zoom out, well, except for the final shot. Interesting. This conversation did not go in the way that I thought it was going to go, but I thought it was fascinating. Um, let's go to our screen stream or skip on A Life on the Farm. Clarice. I, I'm going to say skip, but I can I recommend a documentary instead. I haven't watched this since I was like 14, but I remember it so distinctly. There's a documentary called Winnebago Man, which is about, um, there's this viral video of the outtakes of a, like a local commercial. And it's just this guy like losing it, like just screaming like, motherfucking fuck. And it's like really, and it went really viral and it's really funny. And it was the t- the angriest man in the world. But this documentarian actually goes to like find the guy and you and that's the thing you learn about the it doesn't pretend like it's the the most unique thing to ever have, but like you learn about the context of who this guy was and like what was happening on the day. And there's something like very like I don't know, I just I remember going, God, humanity's so interesting. Because there's always a story behind everything. And I really liked how it took that angle with it. Which I think is sort of what this documentary was trying to do mm. a little bit. Mm. Hannah. Skip. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Saw that one coming. Uh, I'm going to say stream. <laughs> I thought, I mean, I will concede that the filmmaking is conventional where I, I it would have been nice if they were as eccentric, <laughs> a little bit as eccentric as, as its subject was. But I did like learning about Charles Carson uh, and I had a good time with his story. So I'm going to say stream. There's a Charles Carson in every English village. That's what I've learned since moving here. <laughs> going to put on my art, my voice and say, I believe there's a Charles Carson in all of us. <laughs> there's like a lot of like, there's like quite a lot of kooky, 
cooking people in the countryside <laughs> who have like really interesting stories. <laughs> yeah. From the morning cockle-doodle-doo to the morning show. I'm all over this network. I need to have a say in the future of this place. What you are asking is unprecedented. I am unprecedented. You want that seat at the grown-up table. But it's not your turn, Alex. Don't forget to shut the door on your way out. Good morning, good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning, good morning to you and you and you and you. Uh, so, in season three of The Morning Show, the stakes are high as the future of the network is thrown into question and loyalties are pushed to the brink when a tech titan takes an interest in UBA. Unexpected alliances form, private truths are weaponized and everyone is forced to confront their core values both in and out of the newsroom. Uh, show run and executive produced by Charlotte Stout, who joined for this season, and directed and executive produced by Mimi Leader. It stars Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston, Billy Crudup, Mark Duplass, Nesta Carbonell, Karen Pittman, who, like, I was, like, watching this season, I was like, why Why do I know her face? Like, where has she been? And I was like, nah, she's Naya in And Just Like That. Um, so there we go. We've got another And Just Like That cast member in this. <laughs> um, Greta Lee, of course, John Hamm, uh, Nicola Bahari, and Julianne. Juliana Margulies. So, um, I it's been interesting in the morning show. I feel like it's a show that I don't know. Have you have you two watched it? No, but I had my friend recommend it to me. Yeah, said uh, the there's cool lesbian stuff in it. <laughs> yeah, there's some gay stuff. I've been meaning to watch it because <laughs> it has my future wife Gugu and Battle Raw uh, in it. So, well, not in this season. Um, <laughs> I won't tell you. But I, yeah, the thing about the morning show I find really interesting is that I kind of love. Again, it's that kind of like navel gazy. I love anything that's like really into journalism, and there's enough people in it that I love. And it's kind of that kind of slightly trashy, and some of the stuff does is kind of like insane mm-hmm. and stupid. But it's got that kind of Aaron Sorkin esque kind of quality um, to it. And Mimi Leader, obviously, she used to work on ER, so she kind of invented the kind of walking and talking before, mm-hmm. um, like you know Aaron Sorkin did. Um, so, um, but I, you know, she is an icon, uh, which recently did on the basis of sex and then obviously did Deep Impact with its uh, 25 year anniversary. Um, and she obviously, the peacemaker, like, you know, she's great. And I was really interested um, to talk about, I suppose, something about like kind of the way that the kind of, this is a season about like women just get fucked and this is like how many different ways can women get fucked in and out of the workplace let's see what we can come up with this season i really like the fact that kind of reflects on real-time stuff as well so we kind of get into like where they're getting ideas from and also how you direct a kind of character where john ham joins as the kind of tech mogul billionaire and i kind of talk a little bit about how you know it's a character kind of reminds me of like joe from you like Penn Badgley and like even Brad Pitt Whoa. playing Tyler Durden in Fight Club. Well, what I'm saying in the sense of like a kind of questionable character, I mean, not to that extent, but like, mm. a, like a moral, ethically questionable character, but because they've got such a pretty face, do you like, con- are you concerned that audiences might be like, oh, well, we'll let him off because he's hot. You know mm. what I mean? Like that mm. sort of thing. And of course I had to ask about like Deep Impact, which again, you know, there's a whole newsroom element to it. So there's a real mm. through line. Uh, so yeah, so please uh, enjoy this chat with Mimi. Hi Mimi, welcome uh, to the Fade to Black podcast. Um, congratulations on season three. Um, it's so interest. It's so interesting because um, 
I find something really interesting about how kind of art imitating life after a certain time, <laughs> now people see life imitating art. In the UK, there was a recent kind of scandal, TV scandal. And what's been interesting is how many pundits have been going or people tweeting, it's the morning show, it's the morning show. I wonder from like your perspective, like how you feel about that sort of kind of cultural impact and the idea that people who are even in the media industry are saying, oh, this this scandal is like the morning show when it's all inspired by you guys. <laughs> anyway, like, you know. <laughs> I think that's amazing. I think it's awesome. And in our show, life does imitate art, art imitates life. The abortion rights storyline that Bradley has was conceived before Roe v. Wade was overturned. And so it was like, wow, uh, think, you know, we are a topical show and I'm, I'm glad that people are referring to our show uh, because it's the way into our characters, the world and how it affects our characters and, uh, and how flawed they are and how we all are flawed yeah. and yeah. And especially the media industrial complex, uh, <laughs> that plays a big part. Um, I'm, I what I kind of what I love about the show is um, how many ways you show men fucking over women in and out of the workplace. It's just there's a myriad, there's a plethora. It's like unending, and there's so many ways that you can choose from. Like there's so much out there. So I'd love to know. Um, at what point, obviously season three, and obviously, you know, at what point were you kind of selecting about where you wanted this season to go, especially starting with something, of course, so quite, you know, resonant and real, because obviously we've got, you know, the hack, things leaking online, which reminds me of the Sony hack, you know, we've got like legacy media coming over, we've got the kind of like the intersectionality of the workplace where black women are getting underpaid compared to their white counterparts. So getting into that, like, at what point are you selecting and... Um, choosing which ones you really want to kind of grapple with and get this really human approach to it. Yeah, well, you know, we really wanted to, in the in, thematically, you know, talk about um, women's agency, abortion rights, reproductive rights. We wanted to talk about the big lie, minority rule. We wanted to talk about the state of journalists around the world and how what a threat there is to journalists around the world. And our big important theme was our relationship with the truth. And um, those are the themes we wanted to tackle. We wanted to tackle racism, uh, systemic racism in the workplace um, through our character, Nicole Bahari, uh, our character, um, um, Chris Hunter. And, um, you know, I think everything that we tackle is character driven and through the eyes and the POV of our characters. And um, I think it's really important to come from a very personal place when you're talking about the maze of politics in the world. So do you have a kind of like, like jam session? Where it's like, right, come on, let's all get together kind of like, and then like kind of, you know, the right, I mean, obviously the writer's room is such an integral part of like where you kind of hash out, see what sticks, throw things that will see what sticks. Can you tell me a little bit like how that works kind of with on the morning show and like how you kind of like investigate and bring yourself into it as well as kind of seeing what's already available in the world, but stories that you could cover. 
that's absolutely it. You know, we have a writer's room. Our, you know, Charlotte Stout came in as our writing showrunner this season and created an incredible bunch of storylines. And with her merry band of writers and, uh, you know, they sit in a room, <laughs> we sit in a room, and they throw ideas around, you know. Mm -hmm. It always comes, though, from who is the right character to tell this story to, to tell this story. Like for example, in like you like you said, the first season was Me Too. And then we've sort of veered away from sexual assault. Then it was the pandemic. And you know, this year it's about the truth and about the truth telling and about the secrets and it's about power. Alex wants a seat at the table. Um, she doesn't trust Corey. She feels he's taking the UBA down. And she feels that she can control this network. She can lead this network. She has it in her. And, but women are constantly fighting for power, constantly fighting for power. With men, it's a little different. You know, they don't fight. They take. Mm. <laughs> and anyway, it was really yes. important. They don't leave either. <laughs> That's right, they don't. Um, very important for Jen's character to find and step into her power. And for Bradley, very important for her to, you know, this naive truth teller that comes into the network in season one is now doing the evening news. And You've seen the episodes. I'm not sure how much I need to reveal or should reveal, but um, it, she's faced with an enormous decision that will affect her mm. career and her personal life forever. And she eventually, you know, so she's harboring a secret. We don't know what it is until episode five. And, you know, it's very interesting when your family's involved and you're fighting for you know, the health and um, your, the life of your family. And, um, mm. you know, what lie would you tell yourself to do that? And, you know, Alex questions her when she finds out what that is. And I think people take sides. And I think in this show, people eventually do the right thing. But they do a lot of wrong things to get there. And that is yeah. life. That is who we are. We are imperfect. And mm. um, I hope that reflects the masses out there because we all make horrible mistakes. And, and hopefully we get through them. Life is hard, mm. <laughs> especially on the morning show. <laughs> <laughs> it comes at you hard. Uh, continuing that kind of thought, um, I'm really intrigued about Paul Marks as a character um, and obviously having John Hamm play play him, this kind of very dashing, charismatic looking billionaire, but also like ethically, ethically questionable. He reminds me in a way of like when Brad Pitt was cast as Tyler Durden in Fight Club, or maybe more recently having um, Penn Badgley playing Joe in You, a serial killer, in the sense of people come away from watching you and kind of fancy Joe and have this like, ah, oh, I really love this guy. It's like a terrible, you should not be in love. You should not want to date this person. Same with Tyler Durden. 
he's a character that you're not supposed to prop up as a hero, but lots of men had him a poster on their wall at college, right? So I'd love to talk a little bit about that sort of writing that character where you sometimes we kind of let people off a little bit when they have a pretty face, even though what they do is quite morally questionable. So finding that balance and that line. Well, I think Paul comes in as an accelerant and he pushes everybody in the show towards their truth. And um, that people haven't even in the show haven't even acknowledged about themselves. And he forces them to face one another. And, you know, he's a very powerful actor. And, you know, so when do you, you know, I think we're all very fat, you know, multifaceted. We have many faces. And I think a lot, you know, and, and you know, Paul comes in as this savior. Money's going to save us. But, of course, money is not the answer to everything. And I think it's really interesting his how he, I, I'm trying to get back to your question about why do we like him? Why do we root for him? When do we stop rooting for him? When do we see how vulnerable he is? Because you come in thinking he's not vulnerable to anything. He can, you know, he's a billionaire. They're minted every 24 hours. And Corey needs money. He's out of money at UBA. He needs him. He needs Paul. But Paul, is, is Paul really going to be the one to save UV, UBA? Mm. And so, you know, we think he is, but not everybody on the surface is who they say they are. Yeah. And we want people to be good. We want people to tell the truth. We want them to be heroes. But then... But do you want Paul Marks to be, like, the audience to kind of, like... Because I suppose that, do you, do you ever anticipate what the audience might think about the character or might misinterpret it? Does that ever come across it when you're when the kind of developing this? Absolutely. And in the directing of it, you know, yeah. if you're, if you've got a character who's duplicitous or who's not telling the truth, he's maybe telling his truth though, you know, and yeah. that is really the question. What is the truth? Is it his yeah. truth or the what's really happening. And you don't it's know. It's Yes, <laughs> it's perfect. And so we talk about that, of course, and guiding, directing the actor to not reveal too much. Or, you know, I think an actor who plays, you know, if you would call Paul Marks a villain, you somebody might eventually call him that. You're never playing the villain. He's playing it from his heart. You know, he's, he never, he never sees. Well, the villain never thinks they're the villain. <laughs> never. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of power struggles in this season. Yeah. And who's going to win? We won't tell. Um, so before I, I let you go, I, it would be like remiss of me to not mention, as a super fan of Deep Impact, uh, to not mention it's 25 years since it was released. But also, interestingly, like that obviously with Taylor Leone's character having like a news reporter, and you, that was like one of the early ways that you were grappling with um, that sort of shooting. And I'd love to know a little bit about, maybe you can get a through line and like, what that experience like shooting live news, TV reporter influenced the way you might have like, come here with the morning show now, if there is anything that you kind of remembered while making that film? Ah, remembered. Well, they are very similar in a way. Um, you know, 
I guess, Taya Leone's character to Bradley Jackson's character. And I guess I'm very attracted to uh, that character that is a newbie, that character who discovers, who doesn't have the power, but discovers something so powerful. And that's very much a storyline that's very similar to Deep Impact as it is to what Bradley Jackson, Reese Witherspoon's character uh, journey is. And um, I don't know, I forgot the question, but I do know that there is a similarity. And um, it was really fun guiding Taya Leone in that character, directing her uh, in this huge, massive movie about a comet coming to Earth. But for me, that movie wasn't really about the world's gonna end, a comet's gonna come and kill us all. The movie was really about thematically what would you do if you knew the world was going to come to the end, to, to an end? And what would you do if you had nine months to live? How would you live your life? Mm -hmm. That was the real theme of that film. And because those characters like Vanessa Redgrave, her mother, yeah. everybody has to look inside and say, have I lived a good life? What more can I do with the time that I have on this earth? I actually yeah. wish more people would think that every day and maybe the world wouldn't be so fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say my my favorite, the, bit, the moment that sticks in my head is the Taylor Uni's final line with Maximum and Shell one on the beach. She says, Daddy. And it, even now it makes me well up. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I cried too. Thank you. <laughs> Did you cry when you shot it? <laughs> Absolutely, and then in the editing oh. room and and <laughs> people always cite that moment because it was a very authentic, real moment. Mm. about it's the break <laughs> it's the crack in the voice yeah about love you know it it was yeah thank you very much no thank you so much and good luck with season three thank you so much right so from some hot news to some hot takes takes Tomato and meat are approved. Okay, so uh, a new article by Vulture slash New York Magazine interrogates Rotten Tomatoes. The reviews aggregate site and the and it kind of grapples with the relative power it holds in making or breaking a film. Uh, the piece discusses how some PR teams, studios, production companies, and distributors may have been able to manipulate the fresh or rotting rating of their films by either paying for positive reviews to help boost its percentage or even staggering critical access to maintain a high score. It also suggests that the increased diversity of the tomato meter approved critics in recent years has in some way devalued the field and led to more favorable, favorable reviews. You know, there's a lot of things being said in that article um, uh, they had Paul Schrader talking about it, it, it as commented in it. Uh, what stood out for you? What's what kind of things jumped out for you, Amon? Hmm. Well, the big thing that uh, was going around Twitter uh, in regards to this article was the paying of fifty dollars to certain critics to bump up review scores, and that upset me. Um. I've been offered by production companies to review films. I've had to turn them down. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. 
I've been offered that before and I don't really understand it. But I will say in the article, there's a bit where it says, pay, like there was like Rotten Tomatoes does not support. I mean, it was very unclear. It was kind of like, wait, we're critics. We should get paid for our reviews. It's just like, who's doing the paying? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, um, exactly. But that that really upset me. You know, we're, we're going through uh, an interesting time in our industry right now. It's evolving in new ways. People are critiquing movies uh, on YouTube, on social media. And I am of the opinion that anyone can have a decent take on a film. It doesn't necessarily need to come from a Telegraph or an Empire or an established site. But there is a school of thought that those sort of more, I guess, influencer, influenced type of reviews is an issue. I don't see it that way. But when you hear about stuff like this, it doesn't help <laughs> the argument that we're trying to put forward. So that really stood out to me and upset me. And I, I don't think that that is when the moment you agree to do stuff like that, you're not doing criticism. Um, and that's important to say, I think. Mm-hmm. Clarice. Yeah, I guess the, I mean, the, the thing about Ophelia, cause they specify it was Ophelia, the movie where, mm-hmm. um, people had been paid by the production company to review. And there's, I think that it was that thing where it's like, well, we're not telling you to review it positively, but like, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which I think I was surprised. It was a film that I had heard of because, you know, I think a cynical part of myself assumed that like shady production companies were probably going to do something like that because, fraud exists <laughs> and you know people do it. it's like people with amazon products they do that as well where they pay people to like review the product on uh a buying website to boost the reviews and i i kind of see it the same thing as that it's just it is fraud mm. <laughs> it's a good fraud probably not illegal but maybe should be uh but yeah i was i was kind of shocked that it was a movie that i knew and had seen and it is yeah it's pretty bad that movie uh and I feel like I don't know I feel like that there's like there's a lot of issues inside of that article that is that thing of when you just like smash everything together mm, <laughs> it's true. like it's maybe better to just pick it apart and go okay well that is obviously a gigantic problem mm-hmm. that that needs to be dealt with and have you know terms of service in Rotten Tomatoes saying if you're on our website if there we catch wind of you doing something like this you'll be banned for life and they need to be better with it. I don't know. I don't know, like, the legal specifics of this well enough to be able to say what exactly the practice should be, but there should obviously be something to shut down your account mm. if you, it's seen that that's happening. And I'm sure Rotten Tomatoes don't. The people who run the website probably don't want that because it makes them look like their website is pointless. Mm. So I feel like we can put that to one side, <laughs> go like that. Yeah. Um, and then there's also, yeah, the idea of has the broadening of the pool made Rotten Tomatoes pointless? Um, and obviously we all know that Rotten Tomatoes did that under the umbrella of let's improve diversity because it used to be only the voices from the major publications and we all kind of know what those people look like. Mm. Um and so I think that's a little bit more of a complicated issue uh, where we can't, it needs to be better because it can't just be 
such a narrow viewpoint of voices because that really damages certain films as well. And also there are lots of smaller films that don't get reviewed by major publications at all. And so they don't get any coverage. Yeah, I I did a review for this movie for like Empire. This is a Saudi Arabian film, which was like quite big, a UK Ritzatar. And I was trying to put my thing, but I couldn't find it on the website. So I couldn't even put my review for this film on that website, Mm. um, which is frustrating. Yeah, and I, I feel like... Maybe I'm being naive. I feel like there's a middle ground where you can have a more selective editorial process so that you're not just putting people who are getting, (laughs) doing fraudulent reviews. You could find a way to make sure that those don't make it to the site while also making sure that there's a wider variety of voices because there are so many critics writing for really like well-respected but small publications and websites that could make up the body of of critical voices I don't know I feel like I'm talking nonsense but that does that no, make sense I, I think what the problem that? is about the way that that they wrote that part of the article was quite inelegant um in yes. eloquent it was quite um what they could have said is as in most situations whenever you try and make even out the playing force and let more people in and let my options, there's always going to be a way for people to manipulate that and find a loophole to get in. So what by, by saying, by changing the parameters that you can now have podcasts and blogs, because obviously not everyone can do it. That's great because that does get diversity in, but it also means that some people who will easily be paid means that they can also have access to it. So what I don't think they think they could have been clear in saying, well, diversity is actually great. And this has been amazing. We've seen more writers from different backgrounds, from marginalized backgrounds, from different intersections of society, have their name come up and see that count and people find that there are articles. Mm. There are obviously always going to be people who take the piss. And I think that is in literally every single sphere of work that we're in, mm-hmm. like when it comes to benefits and things like that. When you try and do that, people are always going to take the mickey and try it. But so I think they could have articulated that just a little bit more elegantly mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. without trying to tarnish, you know, because people have come out of it. I've seen people tweet saying like, wow, so you're trying to say that we basically devalued the that our field because now there's more. I think it could have mm-hmm. said that a little bit better yeah. in that part of the article. 100%. Um, I think you're touching on one of the issues of how Rotten Tomatoes has evolved within this industry in that, as the title of the article says, it does sort of have Hollywood in its grip because a tomato meter means a lot. Uh, You see it all the time in film campaigns now. But nobody is actually going on Rotten Tomatoes to look up the reviewers and actually click on the links to read what they say. And, and also the, the way that it's designed, it's p- like what annoys me about it is that you have to scroll down a bit to even yeah. get to the reviews. Mm-hmm. So you have this, you have the, it's like where, and this is what I think Rotten to- my frustration with Rotten Tomatoes, in that it exists because of critical reviews and start championing the, the reviews that you're getting. Mm. You wouldn't exist without people writing these critiques Mm. so why aren't you using this website to spotlight them in a better way Mm. you know they have their top critic situation going on Mm -hmm. but like even that list is always the same people who get like to go up they do this Mm. thing where it kind of pushes down on the like the newer reviews come in so it's and it's kind of like make it better but they but rotten tomatoes in both 
benefits from having this sort of sort of power because now like people want Rotten Tomatoes to sponsor things and get their name out and they mm-hmm. want people. But again, this wouldn't exist without the review. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. an insane thing, isn't it? It's like, you kind of want to boycott. Maybe the best way to do Rotten Tomatoes is say, don't allow your articles to go on it, you know? Because it's another algorithm, isn't it? It's like, it's a tool that is benefiting from free, free like, we why why don't people why don't they have to pay certain places to aggregate those articles right apple news has to do that when it comes to news stories surely rotten tomatoes should start be playing like the outlets that they build their site that it can exist on is that me is that like and then is that does that sound like something i don't know i've just come up with that so i don't know if it's actually insane it just it brings to mind one of the other things that the articles to put at the forefront which is that this is a company that is owned by Fandango, who which shares a parent company with Universal Pictures. So it's owned by two companies that are, make movies and that sell tickets to movies. Yeah. And that, there's a conflict there, which feels a little icky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I just think also like the kind of like inflating things is again you see this in wall street right mm. it's like to sell things you see how many things have we seen where we try and like inflate the price of something to make it seem more valuable than it is you know the fact that i feel again go back to the affiliate thing suddenly got over 62 percent, and then suddenly gets a distribution deal it's like that is a technique that, like like uh you know hedge funders and traders have been doing for ages and companies and business have been doing it's not surprising once again Hollywood is a business. It's show business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. but I suppose what comes out of it is that, again, it's the devaluation of the really good work that people are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose I suppose maybe, maybe we can end on a takeaway of, like, how do we think that people should be using Rotten Tomatoes, our listeners, our audience? Because personally, for me, um, I, I I like it because I can go on there. When I'm writing pieces and, I'm, and I want to know a bit more about the thinking, what I do like about it is that, I can look through and find people who might be a different voice and mm-hmm. see what the outlets and see there and try and include it, especially when I'm writing my journalistic pieces that have features and essays. So I'm not having the same quote from the Times, the Guardian, having the same people. Mm-hmm. And try, even when I was writing my book, I was making sure that I had female women of color voices in there so that I could actually have an argument show. Actually, there's far more of us in the world than what, you know, than what we've been told and what we're offered because, you know, journalists, people can be fucking lazy and they refuse to look past it. Yeah. So that's my thing is like, if you want to have an angle, look on the film and then find someone and have a look through and see if there's someone who's doesn't look like you or it's not the same gender as you or is, you know, something about that. Yeah. Um, Clarice. Yeah. Well, I would say... <laughs> uh, sorry, Clarice, can we allow the seagulls to speak? I don't yeah well this is the thing Ron Tomatoes is obviously not gonna like go well we we've seen what the Vulture article said we're gonna shut down (laughs) so I think if we're talking in like realistic terms of how can we make this thing better and improve film culture is we need to like destabilize the idea of the score mm-hmm. and we need to spread the idea that the score is stupid, but what is useful about the website. And I, I do use it sometimes if I'm, because 
it's a good way to find reviews because it's kind of what you said, Hannah, but you're not looking at what Google privileges. You can get an overall map of, of kind of what a lot of different sites and writers, as you said, from different backgrounds, different sizes yeah. of site uh, or publication are saying. And then from there, I will look and I'll be like, oh, I really like that writer. They wrote about this. Let me click on it and read it. So, you know, there is a use for it. And I don't know if I... I don't know. I feel like it's like kind of dramatic to be like, boycott it because there is a use to it. And I think that website could, um, we could as like a public transform it or force it to transform into a tool that is useful to us. If we focus on the aggregation side of it and just stop putting so much goddamn like, (laughs) Stop quoting percentages at mm. people and, and being really obsessed. And also shut up about the audience percentage being different to the critic thing. I don't give a fuck. Like, stop it. It's the most annoying thing. Like, we don't need to have culture wars mm. of, of, about the different tomatoes. Like, I think that's the stuff that it's kind of like there needs to be an attitude change before what the website does changes, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with, with with what both of you are saying there. Um, just to put it in perspective how weird the Rotten Tomatoes rating system is, you could have 40 reviews that are all three stars and your film would have 100% Rotten Tomato rating, um, which is not the way, which is why... I'm they should actually- have, maybe they should fit the levels. So it's like, so it goes from fresh, uh, use by date. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, I mean, the alternative is also Metacritic. I was just about to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just about to say Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm into this tomato decomposing, <laughs> like, line. I feel like we could do that. Yeah. But I do like Rotten Tomatoes for the fact that you can find, uh, with both, you know, with, with all of us and many other writers, we have our own individual pages on Rotten Tomatoes, which list all the reviews that we've done, both for film and TV. Find a writer that you like to follow who has uh, interesting opinions and actually click on the reviews. Um, mm. I don't think people are really doing that. I read a tweet, a couple of tweets, when this all hit the fan that said Rotten Tomatoes doesn't really do anything to boost anybody's, any site's numbers because people aren't clicking on the reviews. They're just clicking on the film, seeing the rating. That's what Paul Schrader said. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know how much that guy is going on that website. But. <laughs> and you can pick up my profile and I have a blonde bob, which was like, who is she? Who was that person? That was oh, a like a life. different photo. Yeah, my photo. So old. Really... It's during lockdown. <laughs> mine, mine is my acting headshot from. Oh, I love it. I love mine it. Is very old, but I'm not going to change is so it. old, he has hair. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything that's that old, but yeah. It's actually just like the little rascals, it's a little alfalfa point up. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm, I'm going to switch mine out for a baby photo, see if anyone notices. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very funny. Um, okay. Well, thanks for tuning in and happy viewing by whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It makes a difference. And tweet us at any questions or hot takes at Fade to Black pod on twitter um i'm at hannah and s flint on instagram and on letterboxd 
Okay, we're doing letterbox now. Nice. Uh, I'm at Amon Woman on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterbox. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockie on Instagram. And someone did give me a Blue Sky code. I need to set that up. Yeah, so I, yeah I got one of those. Yeah. Maybe I'm no, on that by it. the time you listen to it. Maybe I'm not. That's the thing. It's just... It's too many. It's a lot of effort. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And also, I'm India Stark on PlayStation. <laughs> I want people to be my friend on the PlayStation. <laughs> Fortnite! I want people to play Fortnite with me. (laughs) Well, farewell, Fortnite, friends. It's time to flay. It's time to flayed. It's time to flayed. To black.